welcome back to Great Quarter, guys, the show where the lines between freight, finance, and tech are none. I'm Andrew Cox, Senior Retail Analyst here at FreightWaves and your host of the show, and also alongside lead economist Anthony Smith this week. This is episode 88. I'm not a Dallas Cowboys fan at all, but I do love how that number has like just become the number of the best receiver on the team. Yeah. Like from Irvin to, uh, to what's his name, um, Dez now to C.D. Lamb. I love that about that. Kind of like number 38 at Ole Miss. I don't like Ole Miss either, but <laughs> from, I think his name's Chucky Mullins, that, that uh, safety that they give it to like their hardest working safety yeah. every year. I like that. So this is the number 88 Dallas Cowboys episode. We'll call it that C.D. Lamb episode, whichever of the three you like the most. But we've got a great show. We've got a few different topics that have come up today. We've got um, Netflix has tied up with Amazon or was tied up with Walmart to do a big merchandising deal. I love this deal, but we're going to discuss it a little bit more detail. Thrasio, one of those Amazon aggregators that we've kind of been discussing recently, was going to go ahead and SPAC. They're looking to go public. Could be a ten million or a ten billion dollar um, valuation on this company. They've put that on ice. They're having a little turmoil internally. We're going to discuss that. As well, we're also going to talk about some recent economic data and GoPuff, one of my favorite companies that I've been talking all about. They are um, struggling a little bit with overstocking. They're ordering too much and having to throw away a lot of goods, apparently, according to some of their warehouse managers and former warehouse managers. So we're going to get into all of those discussions today. But first, let me thank my sponsor, DDC. This episode is brought to you by DDC FBO. DDC is a business process outsourcing provider that specializes in freight, discover why Today's top-rated LTL carriers rely on DDC-FPO. Learn more at ddcfpo.com. Again, that is ddcfpo.com. We've got one chart of the day for you today, and it's a little bit comparing last year to this year. It's hard. You know, I saw uh, Zach Strickland's article this past week on kind of how did we get here? The supply chains are so snarled. If you want to understand how, or if you want to understand what is going on right now, you have to look back for the last 18 months and understand how we got here. And uh, I just want to comp, just, I'm just going to show you two charts, one of volumes and one of rejections, our two breadwinning indices here at FreightWaves, and comparing them to this year to last year. So uh, you can kind of disregard the purple and green lines down at the bottom as our comps year over year. That's 2019 and 2018, you know, kind of useless to us at this point. Yeah. But blue line 2021, orange line 2020. You can see we're following an eerily familiar pattern to last year. And this, this isn't surprising in itself. We, you can look back to 2018, 2019 and see that they do follow similar patterns. The freight market doesn't, get, doesn't have that much change year over year except for you know, 2020 to, or 2019 to 2020. But my whole point here is that we're running up about 45% over last year nominally on OTVI. But it's important to remember that, of course, our OTVI does include some rejected tenders. It is a measure of overall um, freight demand. So there are some rejected tenders in here. So if we want to flip over to the next chart, I can show you our outbound tender reject index. So while our volumes are about four or five percent over nominally where they were last year, at this time last year, OTRI was about five percentage points higher. So that is a lot more rejected tenders included in OTVI last year than there are this year. My whole point is that <laughs> freight demand is really strong. It's even understated if we compare OTVI year over year. Uh, and you have to take into account this rejected tenders to kind of get a, a little bit of an inverse there, what we call the accepted tender, in, um, accepted tender volume index. That number is even higher year over year uh, than last year. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting when you look at that first chart, we look at those volumes to see how it is, like you said, eerily similar to that, that trend that we were seeing before. Um, that's kind of the thing that echoes throughout other parts of the economy, for me at least, is even when we start to see a slowdown in a sense, there's going to be a, a whole new baseline that's reached. So the new lows are going to be much higher than what we were seeing in the past. And so I think this is exactly what we're going to see that 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 trend really kind of push forward going 
going forward. Yeah, that's a really good point. Even if you think about just, you can think about it with stocks, you can think about it with anything that we base our comparisons year over year. Uh, we were dealing with really easy comparisons at the beginning of this year. We're going to get into really, really difficult comparisons beginning of next year, trying to comp to the beginning of this year. So a lot, I mean, this is gonna, it's gonna take a lot of digestion from the market and digestion from economists and people that do these year over year comparisons to try to understand and dive down past uh, just these. Okay, uh, we've got congestion check, top stories for you. We've been doing this every week. Give you a look at the San Pedro Bay. There's been just, I mean, I don't know if we can call it progress. There's one fewer ship, one less ship this week than there was last year. Last week, there's 143 total ships in port in the San Pedro Bay. That includes 81 at anchor and 62 at berth. Of the 143, 86 are container ships. There's 61 uh, at anchor and 25 at berth. So one less than last week. Still a nuts number. Yeah, still an immense amount of freight sitting out there, between four and 500,000 TEUs sitting out in the San Pedro Bay. Okay, so let's talk about GoPuff for a moment. So there was a, a report that came out on Business Insider, I think Friday, Thursday or Friday afternoon, and it was, it was steamy. I mean, it was scathing. Okay, yeah. so GoPuff is the company that I've been telling you guys about. It's a vertically integrated rapid delivery um, rapid delivery retailer. So they operate about 650 micro fulfillment stores or dark stores or micro fulfillment centers, however you want to call them. They are basically retail spaces that are have been vacant, vacated in the last couple years. And they've gone into this space and they have built a store not open to the outside and purpose built for uh, pickup and delivery, right? And they sell between three to 5,000 SKUs. They're rapidly trying to expand that. But the beauty in this model is that they own the inventory. They don't have to charge a huge uh, delivery fee because they make their margin on the actual goods, not on the delivery fee. So they can they can charge really low delivery fees and still be profitable. In fact, they're profitable in every city that they've been open in for at, la- for at least 18 months. At least that's what they've been saying publicly. This report from Business Insider kind of makes me question that a little bit. So here's kind of the high level of what's going on. They operate all these fulfillment stores. And they have a rampant problem, like a really, really rampant problem of overstocking. Uh, in many of these micro-fulfillment centers, they're tossing tens of thousands of dollars a week in perishable inventory, every single week. And despite warehouse managers' pleas up the chain to slow down the deliveries, nothing has really changed in recent, recent months. One manager at a mid-sized, uh, a mid-sized MFC told Business Insider that he discarded at least $10,000 worth of food every week, sometimes two to three times that. And get this, because his, because his freezers are full and his warehouse is understaffed, most of the time, the food is going straight from the floor where it gets dropped off to right into the trash can because they have wow. nowhere to put it. And we're, we're talking about perishable food here, directly into the dumpster. The warehouse managers point to a variety of causes. Some say that they just can't visit, they, can't, they are incapable of ordering the right stuff because honestly, these guys, the guys that started this and from the top, they are now, we'll talk about who they brought on to try to fix this problem in a second, but these guys are not logistics guys. Mm-hmm. They're not, uh, they're, these guys are tech guys that went to Drexel, created this company to deliver, you know, hookah, hookah essentials and late night snacks for, yeah. for college kids. And they're, they, you know, they're growing so fast. They've gone from a billion dollar valuation in 2019 to a $15 billion valuation in 2021. They're getting all this money poured at them. And they've really outkicked their coverage a little bit here. And they've put growth above all else. And that is the real reason why some of these employees have, a, have, that's why they think this is happening the most is because they're, they're prioritizing growth over everything, including ordering more stuff, getting a wider breadth of goods and a wider geographic reach all over geographic or all over operational efficiency. Rather, they, they fear out of stocks more than they do having to throw away some of this stuff. Yeah. And I think that that last thing you just said is the big point there is that fear of not, it not being available 
than actually being really truly efficient with some of this stuff. And I mean, that's a scary thing because you don't want to have that 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 on their consumers' minds of, oh, I went on GoPuff and they were out of it. Oh, I went right. on and they didn't have it. Right, and it has so, that lasting impact. Yeah, and so I, I get that aspect of it, but there's just so much, I'm sure, meat on the bone and in terms of efficiency that they can really kind of hone in on because when you're looking at this, it just, when you're hearing about just going straight from the floor to the trash because, you know, it, it was, you know, spoiled, it's bad, it's no longer going to be able to be delivered or used, I mean, that, that just screams inefficiency and screams right. dollars. So, mm. um, of course, not being logistics guys, but think hopefully they can kind of get some algorithms in on kind of helping predict what are hot sellers, what should be fulfilled. And I think when we're looking at this just in case versus just in time, I think we're even seeing that on an on a upstream level. We're looking at manufacturers. We're looking at what people are doing with commodities that they're really pulling in because they don't want to get caught with needing a certain commodity, but it not being available for them. Yes, the so a GoPuff spoke, spokesperson called the, char- char- the characterization of the excess food grossly inaccurate. But at the same time, the company has had all hands meetings where they said they're going to do their best to fix what's going on in warehouses, and they have hired Tim Collins, a former Amazon logistics executive, to come in and be their SVP of operations to try to shore this up. They've also hired other executives from Uber, I think CVS as well. So they've noticed it's a problem, and they're yeah. trying to fix it. Um, it's just something we're going to have to watch because I, I think this, I still think this company has a lot of potential. And I do honestly think that the issue that they're facing right now with overstocking and really just not knowing what exactly to buy, like I was seeing, I saw on Reddit, I did, went into a Reddit uh, kind of hole this, this weekend researching this. Apparently, there's very similar things happening at, at, at the Amazon Fresh grocery stores. I saw pictures of bins full of salads and, uh, you know, fresh fresh food and uh, ice cream and sour cream and all this different dairy stuff that had to be thrown away because, again, they had overordered and they didn't know exactly what people are going to want. So I, I, this is a whole new type of retail that they're trying to build because what you're, what you're buying from companies like GoPuff is not the whole weekly grocery order. It's, yeah. you know, just some stuff you might need tonight. And so you know, it's hard. It's really hard to, to, to understand what exactly what people need, and, and they're going to have to do a better job of it. Okay, uh, last top story for you here before we get into you care or not. Nah. There was a story written by Noy Mahoney, uh, our, one of our Freightways writers this week, actually just this morning, and it was titled Untapped Potential. There's far too little freight traveling on U.S. waterways, and some experts say this. So he spoke to a guy named Joseph Link. He's a Brownsville, Texas-based uh, international trade and energy consultant. He said that we have one of the world's greatest waterway networks, and we are barely using it. Link is a founder and CEO of Global Stone LC and was the director of the Port of Brownsville in Texas uh, from 1988 to 1990. And he's currently working with a large investment bank that wants to start putting containers on shipping barges and using the inland waterways instead of long haul and, and really offering, I think, what they believe will be the first long haul container on a barge service. So I was talking to Craig about this. You know, he loves barges and he he knows the name of it. I had never heard of it. It's called short sea shipping is what they call this. Apparently, it's much bigger in Europe where they have to go, you know, from country to country inland. But we do have a infographic here from our FreightWaves infographic team that shows just how much stuff you could put on a barge. You put a lot of stuff, 70 tractor trailers worth of stuff or about 16 rail cars worth on a pretty small barge. But I did talk to uh, JP and Craig about this. Guess how long it takes to go from Chicago to New Orleans on the Mississippi River? All right, uh, let's see, three days. Try 21 days. No. Three weeks. Yeah, so 
you know, this would have to just be such a niche, um, a niche like type of freight. It would have to. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking like I don't know, car parts or something like that that doesn't need. If especially or maybe if we're over ordering and we're ordering for the fall season and you know we get it in the spring, that doesn't happen very often though. Yeah. Like usually we're getting stuff it's like just in time. Be fulfillment for durable goods that can just hey, it's, we're going to replenish just in time. Gotcha. Right, which could be good. You know, again, whatever whatever we can do to open up some trucks, that will be good for the overall system. Um, but I do kind of question whether this is an even feasible thing for like 95% of consumer freight. Yeah. Definitely can't be anything perishable. Um, and I was talking to Bill Priestley, by the way. His dad grew up on the Mississippi River. He said that it really just depends on how much water, how much rain you've had. Because oftentimes, if you have more than a certain amount of rain when you're traveling down the Mississippi, a lot of those bridges don't open. So the barges can't even go under. Uh, they have to wait for the water to clear so that they can go under the bridge. So that it could be even worse. Lead into rain. a whole other type of backlog. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Okay, uh, so I've got, a, I've got a buy sell for you. It's kind of a buy sell. I just want to tell me whether you would buy or sell okay. this if you were uh, in Macy's shoes. So activist investor Jaina Partners is reportedly encouraging department store chain Macy's to spin off its e-commerce business. The e-commerce business is pretty big. It has about $8 billion, uh, $8.5 billion in revenue. And they're doing this in order to seek a much higher valuation for the separate entity. Macy's told investors in August that it is expected to do between 8.35 and 8.45 in e-commerce sales. That's doubling uh, in about the past four years. If Macy's were to split off its online business at a sales multiple, multiple similar to that of Saks.com, so Saks Fifth Avenue, kind of set some precedent earlier this year doing just this. They spun off their Saks.com business. If they got a similar multiple to what that got, Macy's e-commerce operation alone could be worth $14 billion. Currently, right now, the entire company together, Macy's, is trading about $6.9 billion valuation. So um, if you were in Macy's shoes, would you even, would you consider doing this? I, I would consider a hybrid model. So maybe not even fully spinning off and just, you know, doing a split with e-commerce versus their, their store right now, maybe just drastically reduce their, their store presence and not really have the need to have these anchor stores and all these retail uh, centers, maybe reduce their, their, their footprint, have a smaller store and make it as uh, one of those things where Amazon's almost doing now where you can come in, see what it is, be so fast with delivery, like a GoPuff of Macy's and, and product delivery, like, oh, I came in for the shirt, I can have it within 15 minutes. You know, right. I can have it delivered to me at these micro-fulfillment centers, potentially throughout the country. So I think if they were to reduce their footprints, that will reduce, I'm sure, a lot of costly overhead. And I think uh, really there, the sky is the limit when you look at what's going on with e-commerce for sure. Yeah, I actually like that answer a lot. Like, I don't know, like the hybrid model, it's just the, the, what I was hearing from your explanation was that in any case, no matter how many stores you have, your stores are still important and yeah. you can still leverage them in a holistic way to build this, you know, omni-channel model. And I mean, I, I understand why this guy's proposing this. I don't know if you've been in a Macy's in the last like two years, yeah. but they're atrocious. Like yeah. they're absolutely horrible. They're, they're, their um, merchandise is awful. It's spread out all over the place. It's like they don't even re-rack things overnight. It's, it's a nightmare. Everyone I've been into recently. So there is a reason that people are doing this. They're, they're why they're proposing this. The, yeah. the, the stores are dragging down the value of the entire company. And that's so crazy given like a few years ago when Macy's was really on the downturn, people were talking about uh, their, their value of just their real estate alone was like, oh, this makes, this makes Macy's a value buy. Yeah. And it's like now they're trying to sell off, the, you know, they're trying to split the two entities. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make much sense to me. The only benefit here is short-term financial gain. And the only people that are proposing it are the people that are 
set to benefit the most in yeah. the short term for financial gain. So, I mean, just in reality to me, like the e-commerce and the store business, they cannot be separated like physically or or in any way because they are so whole, like holistically integrated at this point. Yeah. And, yeah. and for any retailer for that point, like I don't think this makes sense for any retailer. And the thing is, it's like, I really want there to be an in-store so I can at least see the thing. I want to know, am I going to like this? Can I try this on? All right, I can't buy this one, but when can I get it? At the same time, but the moments where I do go into a store for clothes, a lot of I want it then that day. And as soon as like the, an associate tells me, like, hey, we don't have it in stock, this store three hours away has it, <laughs> I'm not going to that store three hours away. Right. Um, we can also mail it to you. I'm like, I don't want it anymore. So <laughs> if you can get it to me within 15 to 20 minutes and it's going to be there that same day, that's a huge game changer for me in my mind. If there is any type of retailer that can kind of make that fulfillment of like, yeah, we don't have it in stock right now, but 15, 20 minutes, where's your address? We have a delivery guy ready for you to bring you your goods. Yeah, that's the future for sure. Just the reality here is that the answer is not to separate these businesses. Right. It's to invest in the stores and make them better again. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it, I don't you know, it just seems crazy. Okay, um, this is one I actually think you'll, you'll have a lot of interest in. So it's not, I'm not going to call it a new segment because it's not quite that, but it's just, it's kind of like you care a knob, but it's, I'm going to call it Can You Dig It? Because I like this, I like this move, and I'll, like I'll forward, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'll forward with that I do dig this a lot. So Best Buy is pushing into healthcare. And when you first think about that on the surface, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But in a similar way that it, like if you think about it on the surface, maybe it didn't make all that much sense that they were getting into uh, outdoor gear with, uh, you know, with grills and such back at the beginning of this year. But when you think about where both of these segments are going with more and more technology, it actually makes quite a lot of sense. So uh, Corey Berry, the CEO, has frequently described healthcare as a growth opportunity for Best Buy. She's pointed to several trends that work in the retailer's favor. So you have the desire of baby boomers. They want to age at home uh, much more than they did in previous generations. The healthcare industry in general, they know they need to cut costs right now and manage costs. And then you have watches. You have smart watches, the Apple Watch and, and Fitbit and Android watches, all of these different uh, technologies that are just barely scratching the surface of what they're capable of doing with, uh, with healthcare and predictive medicine. So all this culminates to Best Buy uh, on Tuesday. I said it has agreed, that was today, ag agreed to acquire Current Health. I don't know much about this company, but it is a UK tech company that helps with remote patient monitoring and telehealth. So can you dig it? This move getting into uh, healthcare for Best Buy. I, I can, um, but I have a little bit of reservation with this one. So my first thing that I'm thinking about is Best Buy's core demographic. So when I think of Best Buy's core demographic, when Best Buy was just cooking and growing like crazy, I think of late 90s, early 2000s, or really that mid-2000s era, mm -hmm. where you would go to Best Buy, of course, for your DVDs, kind of on near the tail end of, of, of CDs, but you would go there for all your video games. You would go there for almost anything and everything. Mm -hmm. Now, I think of that core demographic. I don't think that core demographic is going to be really that baby boomer population. So I think that that growth is there for sure. I think they're going to have to do some work with really acquiring that baby boomer population because I think when I think of baby boomers, I don't really see them. Yeah, I think they are for sure a core demographic, but I don't think they're the biggest buyers or the biggest, the most active users for Best Buy um, uh, from years past. So I think that's my only reservation. So I think they will have to do a, a fair amount of marketing mm -hmm. and uh, you know customer acquisition when trying to get these baby boomers active into their ecosystem. Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, it's definitely not their core demographic, I don't think. So I think that, you know, similar to how Target or Walmart are expanding either up or downwards, you know, they're trying to expand upwards in age uh, yeah. here with this. So th this isn't their first uh, 
their first entry into the space. So they acquired Great Call, which is uh, a company that they acquired for $800 million in 2018. And this company makes easy-to-use cell phones and like connected devices and such for, for, uh, for elderly people and provides emergency response services for aging adults even. And they have another one, too, um, in 2019 that they acquired called Critical Signal Technologies. And this company allows healthcare organizations to monitor patients at home. So they've, they've done some things to get in here. But I, my last thing I'll say about this is <clears throat> a lot of investors and analysts are kind of pushing for uh, Best Buy to get into exercise equipment, or at mm. least they, they, that was the push prior to them getting into, um, getting into outdoor stuff. But I like how they've, they've kind of taken two different routes that I think will eventually both end up at, elect, at, both end up at, um, at exercise equipment. Yeah. They've gone outdoor and healthcare. <laughs> it's like, mm, I think it's a pretty easy pivot that we know where they're going next here. Like they've expanded outside of electronics into outdoor gear and now healthcare. And it seems electron, or it seems exercise equipment. It yeah. seems to be next. Okay, good stuff. Uh, we got You Care or Now. We got about 10 minutes here to knock out our You Care or Now. This one was a big deal. I think it's a really big deal. Rather than compete, it was as early as, as late as 2018, Walmart was still trying to launch, uh, you know, their own streaming service. They sold Voodoo. I don't know if you ever heard of that one. Yeah. V-U-D-U. I don't think it ever got anywhere, but they sold it to Fandango or something. I can't remember a couple years ago. Uh, but rather than compete with Netflix, Walmart has inked an exclusive deal with Netflix. Uh, so what do you think? Uh, this was one of those areas where I was a little bit hesitant on it. But the more and more I hear about it, the more and more I'm kind of like, okay, this makes more sense. This makes more sense. Um, at first, I was a nah, like a hard nah. Now I'm just like a, a light nah. Like why, I'm, why were you a hard nah to begin with? Because I, I didn't really see the, the, the overlap or the connection. And mm. so I, I'm more of like a light nah, and I'm kind of coming up on the, yeah, this makes sense, this makes sense. And so... I'm struggling on making that, that connection. I think the more and more I hear you talk about it and why it does make sense, I'm kind of getting sold a little bit more on the idea. But right now, I'm like a light knock. Nah. Okay. I, I will say I kind of felt a, a, like slightly the same way. I didn't know if we had... Um, I didn't know if these had the same, like as many of the same uh, audience bases as that they actually do, but I think they do. I mean, yeah. think about this. Walmart is within 10 miles of 90% of America. Netflix has 160 million American subscribers. I mean, yeah. we're talking about a lot of people here. Like for Walmart, you get access to just a stable of incredible brands and incredible shows to merchandise for. And it's not just t-shirts. We're talking, mm-hmm. you know, um, figurines, um, video games, any music, everything that you can imagine w- will be sold here. Uh, and then for Netflix, you get access to global, a global distribution chain with, again, 90% within 10 miles of, Amer- of, of, of America. Um, massive scale here. Netflix spends almost $20 billion per year on content, on new content. And that's only growing up, that's only going up each year. So I think it's a huge move. Go, can you guys pop up that uh, quick picture of the, of the uh, no, I'm sorry, of the Shop and Shop? I put it up at Disney. There we are. So this is the Disney Shop and Shops at Target, right? So they mm-hmm. have gone all out with Disney. They do these with a few other companies, with Levi's as well, and uh, with Apple now. But that is what Netflix should eventually get to with Walmart. They haven't said that this is the goal, um, but those types of like immersive shopping shops with, but imagine this, rather than just Disney, just children's stuff, you've got a whole world for adults as well to dive into Squid Game, to dive into whatever so, your favorite new show is on Netflix is. Back in the day, not back in the day, like it was so long ago, but I could go in there and get me like a Carol Baskin, Tiger King. Exactly. Mer- okay, gotcha. Precisely. Okay. Gotcha, you know, gotcha. So, it's just like, it's that kind of idea. It's like, watch your favorite show. The next week, you start seeing the stuff at, on your weekly grocery run. That's going to entice some people. Yeah. I like the deal. Um, Anthony, really quick, we've got 30 seconds here. Just tell me how, tell me good or bad what you think about the record number of Americans quitting their job in August, 4.3 million people. Um, care about this one, I think is, you said good or bad. I'm going to say 
good-ish okay. Ish? if they are getting new jobs. Right. If they're voluntary quitting, getting new jobs. Bad if they're not going back to the workplace because their participation rate is still too low. So I think good, get new jobs, get secure, keep on buying stuff. Yeah, I mean, quits are a gauge of confidence yeah. in some way, hopefully. Um, and that's like that data set goes back to 2000, December 2000. So a lot of a lot of quits there. All right, we are running short on time today, unfortunately, on this Des on this Des episode, this uh, CD Lamb episode, episode 88. Thanks for joining us today. If you joined us live on FreightWaves TV or LinkedIn or YouTube, if you are listening on demand, make sure you subscribe to uh, Great Quarter Guys wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Music or Spotify. We will see you again next week, same time, 3 o'clock Eastern, right here on FreightWaves TV. Have a good one. Thank you.